0: Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Rob, the CEO of Ikata, and we discuss autonomous teams that operate within their own envelope, advice for CTOs making the transition to CEO, and actionable steps that you can take to sell your ideas to an executive team. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast.
1: Hello, how are you? These are only my reading glasses, but I can see you better with them on. So, since it's not, <laughs> since we're not video recording, I'm just going to keep them on.
0: You look beautiful, my friend.
1: I, 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 I had to give into these about a year and a half ago, and within like two weeks, I was completely dependent on them.
0: Well, you look smart. <laughs> like I trust you more. Hey, I
1: man, I, I need all the help I can get on that front. So, I'm going to wear these things night and day now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You start wearing glasses. Your income goes up. People start treating you differently. <laughs> life is good. All because of all because of five dollars glasses. When you're checking out of water,
1: exactly. Who would have exactly. thought?
0: Where, where are you calling in from today? Seattle. Ooh, is it rainy there?
1: Uh, not now. It actually is colder than seasonally colder than normal, but not wet. So we'll take it.
0: All right. All right. You got you got family. What do you have going on in your personal life? <laughs> Jumping right into it, a lot, man. Tell me, man.
1: Uh, I got three kids. I'm getting ready to cook a bird. We got some family coming in for Thanksgiving. Right. Uh, you know, I'm going to show you this. This is brand new. How old are your kids? Uh, they're all teenagers, which means they're very cynical. Um, two of the three of them, I get more grief back from them. I, I, I made a mistake when I was. They were very young. They didn't understand sarcasm to be sarcastic <laughs> with with them, and now they're so sarcastic with me. It is frightening. Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> look at this technology so this is like the daycare they text you like every two hours a picture of them and it's like detailed what they're doing what they ate how much they ate diaper changes <laughs> is that not insane
1: all right so I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, give you another uh, another example here so um, understand that you know I have to travel internationally quite a bit Yeah. And uh, I'm over in Europe. We've got an office. We got two offices in Europe. So I'm over there like three, four times a year. And, oh, I can't find the examples. But basically, I get texts every day from the dog walker. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I'm trying to tell people like back in my day, we would get a URL pass and it'd be like, we didn't have any mobile phones. It'd be like, hey, We'll see it in three weeks, you know, in, in three days, the Amsterdam train station track 11 between 10 and 11 a.m. If they're, if you're not there, it's the next day, same place. Otherwise, we'll see you in two weeks. Like that was how it worked back then, right? Now I'm over there. I'm getting texts from the dog walker each day on how my Black Lab Indigo is doing. So a little bit Beautiful. different.
0: Is it like Rover or is she just taking that on her own initiative, taking pictures? Just, just
1: with- like, you know, the dog walkers we have, they send texts every day with the pictures <laughs> how the dog's doing where they went well what type of dogs do you have i have one dog uh, i can't believe i can't find these sex. they're all over the place normally we have one dog named indigo she's a black lab there you go yeah
0: my wife is actually we just did the daycare thing this is new this okay the Last couple of weeks so that she can attend veterinary school to become a doctor of veterinary medicine
1: I'm a big dog fan. I'm a big animal fan. Frankly, I'm a little bit allergic to cats, although I like cats. They like me. Heaven knows they like me. So it's the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> you got me there.
0: <laughs> oh man, this is great. You're a, you're a lot of fun. So like, I... <laughs> you're gonna be fine. You're gonna go? okay. you're good to go. <laughs> yeah, this is the show. By the way, we, this is we're already halfway through. Already great, man. fantastic. <laughs>
1: Sounds good.
0: All right, so how did you, like, where did you get involved with technology? Like, where did it even start?
1: Well, um, although all of my engineer, software engineers and product managers would like choke on their coffee here, in high school I used to code quite a bit for a, I had a really good teacher. And um, I did a lot of what we called software programming, we certainly didn't call it engineering back then. and that was a long, long time ago. And then I was an engineering major in college, uh, mechanical engineer, because I frankly got burned out in a couple of computer courses. Um, and then I was a submarine officer in the Navy for my first five years out of college. And I got—I went through a nuclear, tech, basically nuclear reactor plant management program, um, we, we very heavy engineering. So I was always in very technical things, um, even though I'm not these days a software engineer by any means. And so... When I got out of business school, I, um, after the Navy, I started out in software sales. But part of the reason I was able to do it is because I could pick up the product pretty quickly and I could demo it myself instead of relying on someone and so forth like that. So I've kind of been around some kind of technical aspect all through my career from college on, really from high school on.
0: So when you were on the sub for like all those years, like how long do you go at a time?
1: Well, uh, I was on out here in, in, in Bangor, Washington, the, the ballistic missile subs, uh, and known colloquially as, as boomers, go out for kind of 10 weeks at a time on their deterrent patrols, and they come back and switch out crews. I was on a fast attack sub, kind of a typical uh, 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 sub that does other submarine missions. We never had a second crew. We, uh, the longest we were out was not 10 weeks. Probably the longest we were under underway or on, you know, under the water was about six weeks which doesn't, isn't that long by submarine standards. Uh, but we were, in three and a half years aboard, um, I, we were away from home port more than 70% of the time for three and a half years. So I was underway a lot. Wow,
0: and was that a nuclear sub?
1: It was a nuclear sub, nuclear powered. We never carried nuclear weapons. We carried torpedoes and, and a, more than that, we carried uh, uh, tactical Tomahawk cruise missiles. Nice. So you
0: would like surface and then that's when? The- uh, yeah, periscope depth.
1: Periscope we did depth. some seal operations, mainly training operations with the seals back then. It was before it was before the days of a lot of the sort of global terrorism stuff that's going on now, but it was in the early to mid 90s. The Cold War had just ended.
0: So I'm a huge nerd and I was reading, And so correct me if I'm wrong, but I saw like some some of the nuclear aircraft carrier and that means like they're powered by nuclear power correct they could go like 120 years without refueling is that wrong
1: yeah basically they've they've developed the nuclear cores now so they last longer than the ship's life um so it's it's pretty it used to be like my boat was the keel was laid in 1972 or 73. And I was on it pretty late in life in like the, you know, early 90s, 91 to 94. But all of those boats had a refueling overhaul halfway through. In other words, the hulls and everything lasted twice as long as the nuclear cores. Now, all of the ships are putting out, nuclear powered ships and subs are, the, the core lasts longer than the life of the ship.
0: That's amazing. I love it. I I'm I'm so geeky and nerdy. I was watching like <laughs> Einstein's quantum, like, Riddle earlier, uh, so like what? Is Don't the ask Ekata? me that.
1: <laughs> Even the glasses won't help there.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, spooky action at a distance, right? So, so what's Ekata? First of all, the name sounds amazing. When I hear it, it's fun to say. Very cool. <laughs> okay, we call it Akata. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's our, our whole team is wrong. Like weeks like, Ekata's coming on. Uh, Akata, you, uh, we spun out of, um, I used to be the CEO of White Pages. I, I started a, as, a, as a VP of sales and then a general manager of, of White Pages Pro, which was back in 2012, 2013. It was basically an accessing white pages consumer data that was on the website via api for business purposes and so that business grew and grew and ultimately um, i was uh, the the founder and, and 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 chairman of the board asked me to run the, the the whole company which was two business units one consumer one one b2b and then ekara we we basically separated the two businesses began kind of diverge in terms of strategy and so forth and so we separated and became a KATA. we used to be white pages pro and that was relatively recent in in june and basically we provide what's called identity verification uh, globally for if you joel are doing it uh what's called a card not present transaction or some sort of payment Uh, via Venmo or PayPal or anything else where, you know, you're not standing at a counter and someone can't ask you for a second form of identification, like, you know, your, your uh, driver's license or something. Um, Our data is used to try and verify is this really Joel or is it someone who's, you know, impersonating Joel with some of his data they've bought on the dark web or stolen in some way hacked into his computer or whatever and is impersonating Joel from a cyber fraud standpoint to embezzle you know or, or steal money in some way is that happening a lot? Cyber fraud is a growth business unfortunately for the world, and uh, as more and more of the world economy moves online, it's a really target rich environment and especially in places like Russia and china it's a lot, a lot of ways it's state sponsored so uh, it, 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 at a minimum, the state looks the other way. you know what I'm saying so uh They're not going to do anything. There's no Federal Bureau of Investigation or whatever is going to break down someone's door in Russia and arrest them for committing cyber crimes.
0: Yeah. And I was talking with a cybersecurity person a few weeks ago, and they were saying that like we were talking specifically about how they'll attack computers and like take over them and Mm -hmm. then like encrypt their hard drives and then charge them to decrypt their hard drives. And they said that they, it, it runs like a business, like there's customer support and sales and like you can <laughs> talk with them and they act like a business. And I was blown away by that. Yeah. So you guys are helping prevent that.
1: We we help prevent it's usually that's a little locking your computer is something that's a little bit tangential, but we prim, primarily work with large and global e-commerce companies, um, online travel agencies, you know, think like, Anybody who's selling some sort of a digital ticket online, um, mm-hmm. almost all of those are customers of ours. And then um, payment companies, card brands, um, almost all of the big card brands and payment companies are customers of ours. Um, and our data is just part of of what's used, but we, we have what Gartner calls dynamic, personally identifiable information. So static PII is like... A, a social security number date of birth it's all been compromised you know yours or my data can be bought on the dark web anytime uh dynamic pi is things like email addresses mobile phone numbers ip addresses things that change more and it's harder for a fraudster to piece together all those things to make it look like joel they might be able to get your address or they might be able to get your email it's hard for them to get your email and your address that's really yours at the same time so we try and provide what is really Joel out there and a, and a customer of ours compares what they're getting from an online form when you fill out a payment form or a, something to buy a ticket or, or, or buy a good um, and they compare it to our data and say, mm, this 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 looks like it's part of Joel, but then there's a brand new email address or there's a shipping address that's been used 25 times in the past two days that is not associated with him. That's weird. Um, and so that's kind of how our data is used. And then we also have kind of a behavioral element. We we, we hash and anonymize all this data, but we look for velocities and things that are, are sort of behaving unlike you would behave as a person.
0: That's really interesting. And then it seems like time would be really important because the transactions they process in like seconds. So is that an important part of the business for you guys?
1: We, we um, have made a four- to five-year investment in reducing latency down from, you know a second and a half down to 80 milliseconds for what, what the industry calls P99. Um, I'm sure your listeners will know 99 percent of our resp- API responses in less than 80 milliseconds, to basically move from after a payment authorization, which is called post-auth in our industry, to pre-auth, before, before a credit card payment authorization. Because more and more companies want to decide early on, is this a good customer or not? And maybe if it is Joel, um, and our data is also used to verify it's you, we want to give you a really good, you know, we want to maybe give you an offer an incentive because you're a repeat customer, a good customer. So we want to do that before the payment authorization too, because we might want to give you a discount or cash back or some offer to, you know, double before you actually authorize the payment. You know, what you're going to do, buy two of them or something. So anyway, we've, we've made a four plus year investment in reduced latency and probably as a lot, a lot of folks listening to this podcast know, you know, when we were trying to reduce from a second to 800 milliseconds, cut 200 milliseconds off that, that's, way easier to cut 200 milliseconds off of a second than cut 10 milliseconds off an 80 millisecond response today. Like the engineering problem is about 10 times as hard, it grows geometrically, not linearly as you go down that latency curve. And so the amount of engineering challenges we have today, you know, today we're going from, in 2020 our goal is to go from 80 millisecond P99 to 50 millisecond P99 on our core products. and that challenge is like something we couldn't have fathomed four years ago when we embarked on this. You're
0: going to have to buy glasses for everybody.
1: <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. I mean, these reading glasses that make me look smart, man, everyone's going to need them.
0: How amazing would that be standing in front of your board discussing how you cut the milliseconds off? <laughs> 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 oh, man! So at what point were you guys like, we need to divest this. We need to make this its own thing.
1: Well, we just... We, we um, you know, when I came to what was White Pages Pro in 2013, it was a little 10-person business unit, and our founder, who's a real entrepreneur's entrepreneur, Alex Algard, my boss, he's the chairman of the boards of, of this company today, um, had kind of a gleam in his eye about a B2B business unit. Um, it was 10 people. It was small. Um, it was a $2 million run rate flat in 2013, but since then, we've been able to grow 50% a year every year year over year over year, and we don 't burn a ton of capital because we 're not playing with venture money or the house's money we 're playing with the algard family you know portfolio and and so we we, we play it pretty close to the vest and so we 've been able to do that without just throwing capital at the wall and and um, so at, at some point we had opened up we had a pretty big operation in budapest, Hungary we were opening up Amsterdam last year. Um, As a sales and marketing office, we're opening up Singapore at the end of this year. So the Akata identity verification business had gone global. Uh, WhitePages.com is a consumer business. It's, it's more domestic. Um, and so the strategies just started to diverge. You know, we were all, all, a lot of our engineering, as we just talked about, was focused on things like latency and so forth. Um, um, the it's 80% of our business is API driven whereas the consumer business is, is all through kind of website and, and conversion rates and so forth. So it's just a very different strategy and we were investing in things different. and we had gotten big enough that from a cash flow standpoint, we were self-sufficient. We, we for you know, the early years, we basically had been funded by the profits of the consumer business, which was a more mature and profitable business. And so we didn't need that anymore. So those those were the reasons that we separated. The other thing was, was just, I ran two business units in the, at that time. And it was just, you know, it's easier to focus when each business was separate. They could focus on the things they're doing. The, the consumer business is run by a really sharp woman named Lee McMillan, who I initially hired, um, who was started as the VP of marketing. And then quickly the GM of the consumer business. Now she's CEO of White Pages and she's great. And, and she can focus all her time and effort, her team's effort on that business. So that's a win for everybody.
0: So do you target like developers? Like who do you market to? Like who do you advertise to?
1: We market and advert. Well, we, we, we basically market and advertise to kind of three groups, uh, product managers, um, uh, data science, uh, and, and, and sort of modeling teams and risk. Um, and then at the executive level, either a chief uh, security officer or chief risk officer, sometimes that rolls up the CFO. So uh, th- those are kind of the three executive sponsor types that we have. Um, but our day-to-day work a lot of times is with product managers or product managers and, and modeling teams that are effectively doing ML models for decisioning on whether to approve or reject a, a, a payment request or an, a, 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 you know, an order for a ticket or a, a good or service or a new account signup of some sort.
0: So there's just different parts. Like my mind is always isolated, you know. I'm very segmented in my mind to like the SaaS type industry where you get Stripe and they have the features. But in all these other parts of the market, they're needing to build these systems.
1: Yeah, I mean Stripe's a customer of ours, just as an example. But behind the scenes on their products, they're helping their customers decide. You know, wh- wh- you know what payments are good and and not good in a number of different ways, and. Uh, some of the time they're on the hook for that. Some of the time their customers are on the hook for that. Um, uh, but they're trying to provide through the data and data science, uh, horsepower that they've got. Um, you know, they're trying to assist their customers on assessing good versus bad payments. And, um, in order to do that, they run a bunch of ML models and ML models are only as good as the data that goes into them. So we spend a lot of time on normalizing the data that we work with, this dynamic PII that I talked about into model features, you know, one zeros, categorical responses, um, a, a, a numeric range where the model decides where the branch over point is on the range. But we, we provide that a normalized way. Cause you know, most, most modeling teams will say, well, we're going to use our internal data first. And then they realize, well, the internal data is hosted by a different team over here and a different team over there. It was never persistent in a way to use as a model feature. So now I got to cleanse it normalize it just to test it and try and build some features out of it, then if that's the case, then I gotta go borrow resources from this other team, this other PL to build a service that will will sort of store that data the right way, and, 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 and have a P99, you know, an, an uptime of four nines and a P99 response of, you know, internally 100, 150 milliseconds just to feed my model. All of those things need to happen with some group whose core mission is not feeding my model, and in general, you know, we're sort of there and ready to go and, and pretty good at what we do, and so, you know, they, 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 we, we, we help in that. We always call it a layered approach. Our data is never the only thing in a model.
0: So rather than them going out and building that whole section, they're just like, you guys are experts over there. Let's just use them.
1: Exactly. They sort of start with us and then, and then build onto that.
0: Nice. So what is your, what does your team look like? Like, what does your direct report team look like?
1: I have a SVP of a product and operations, a guy named Kushal Shaha, Awesome, awesome guy. I've worked with here since he was started as a raw product manager, but had been been a, been a founder, you know, a startup guy before that. And he'd also spent a lot of time at Microsoft. Um, I have a VP of engineering, Varun Kumar. You know, worked for Amazon for a number of years, but also um, at worked at startups. You, uh, you should kind of feel this yin and yang of a lot of people here are very entrepreneurial, but they also have some big company experience. Um, uh, so I, I, my general philosophy is that product and engineering should be separate. I, I almost never have to play tiebreaker b- between those teams. And frankly, I wouldn't be managing it well if I did. But there's always a healthy, you know, sort of yin and yang balance between product and engineering. And so I, I like them to keep them separate. Um, and then, uh, I've got a, a VP of global marketing. I've got, um, a, a, a VP of sales that reports to me that has a number of different sales channels. Um, I've got a, a VP of account services and customer success. She, she runs a global team in three continents. Um, and then, uh, I've, our CFO, uh, Jason Eglett. Um, and sort of that rounds out my direct reports. So if
0: like I have been getting a lot of questions from CTOs about how they make the transition to CEO and what what sort of thoughts do you have there
1: well the we we have a we have a you know so first of all I'm a I'm a sales guy by background in technology right I started out carrying a bag in enterprise sales so Um, At one level, I'm maybe not like the best, like I don't have a, I don't have my own career path didn't start on the, on the technology engineer and engineering side. What I would say though, is the more they can get outside the company, the better. Okay. Now we have, we have seven operating imperatives here. The first is we build enduring customer relationships and like, there isn't a person here that isn't trying to get to touch customers because I value it so much and our executive team values it so much. So like our, our VP of engineering is out with customers, not a ton cause he's got to be a VP of engineering, but like he's out there. He speaks at a couple conferences a year. Um, so just generally he's out in market externally. Um, and, and I think that's a, a key thing, uh, because, The market is messy out there. There's a lot of variables you can't control. Customers tell you things you don't want to hear. You know, they you you whiteboard something the way you think it should work. It never works that way in the market. You know, and so the more that the 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 CTOs uh, begin to get comfortable with the variables that they can't control outside the four walls of the company, the better they'll they'll be as a CEO. I think. Um, So that would probably be my number one item.
0: Yeah. I love how you answered that, by the way. (laughs) That was was my favorite. I'm going to (laughs) like highlight that and make a blog post about it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, all right. So you you explained a little bit about your culture uh, with it being some people have some, you know, big box experience and some entrepreneurial experience. Um, Is that like, you found that to be very important or like, I, I want you to the question isn't well formed, so that's on me. Yeah. But <laughs> I want you to talk a little bit, like more about, like, is that a requirement for everybody, or is that just a pattern you've noticed?
1: So I've been a CEO a couple times, and the first time uh, I was thirty-three. I'd been in enterprise sales for a couple years. You know, I wrote a business plan, um, and and it was it was software as a service before its time. Back in two thousand, it, it it launched in two thousand. Just before the the first tech bubble burst, um, I, I ran it for six years. I raised like twenty six million dollars of capital, more than I ever meant to raise. That's not a lot of money these days, but back then it was a lot of money. Um, it didn't work. It was a hard fail. Like it, I I tr- turned the lights off at the end, um, and I learned a lot from that. And uh, it was a really hard thing <laughs> professionally because I don't throw in the towel easily. Um, and then I've you know been a CEO a couple times since then in various places, and and so. I had a couple of, of of feelings when I got here um, and things I'd learned just the hard way over time and so uh, you know a couple of those roll into our culture today um and 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 they're very kind of uh, central to what we do. The first is um we have one of our other seven operating imperatives called bring a point of view and um, basically, I tried to do too much the first time I was a CEO. I tried to carry that thing on my shoulders every time. Like we couldn't get, we we had really, we were in the aerospace industry. It's a long, sad story. It would take me a lot of beers and a lot of tears to tell you about. But like, um, it was a it was a market that didn't move fast, and 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 so we just when when things weren't going well, I just had to raise more capital basically to try and keep the you know, the you know the 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 the, the, um, the the company moving in, and I tried to carry that thing on my shoulders too much. And so what I learned, and frankly, uh, a, a woman that was my chief operating officer for the last two years there really taught me Carla Corcoran was like, don't, when someone brings you something, don't, don't like immediately have a response. And so I, I learned from her, my response should be, what do you think we should do? Like, Hey, Joel, if you bring me a problem, great. But like, I'm just, the first thing I'm going to ask you is what do you think we should do? And what that does is it trains you not to bring me a problem, but know that if you bring me a problem, I'm going to ask you what, what, what you think I should do. So what that does is two things. Number one is it empowers you a little bit, right? Because you start thinking like, man, if I, if I have an idea, usually like I'm going to get listened to, right? Um, two is from my standpoint, it gives me a lot more leverage. Why? Because I don't need to figure every problem out. I just need to ask people what they think we should do. And like 90% of the time, what we should do is like a gray area. It's not like a right, wrong answer. It's like, well, we could go this way or that way. And so if I say, well, gosh, I mean, I could like really think hard about this or I should just, or I could do just what Joel says we should do. What's that do? Well, unless I've like seen the movie play out and I know there's like this really bad crash and a lot of smoke and like blood at the end. We should just let Joel implement his idea. Why? Because he's going to implement it five times as hard as if I tell him to do something else, which is usually about about what the success rate is, is how hard it's implemented, right? That's number one. Number two, I've empowered him to do something. Number three, I've given myself some leverage because I don't need to worry about that now. Joel had an idea on on how to solve the problem. He's going to solve it now. So I've trained my entire executive team to do that. They've trained their direct reports to do that. It's in, in, in embedded in our company culture of bring a point of view. So literally, there is a muscle memory function here that I've trained the whole, the, all, of the, all of the leaders and managers and product managers on. We call them line managers here. Someone comes to you with something, the first thing out of your mouth is not we should do this or we should do that. The first thing out of your mouth is what do you think we should do? And it's trained the whole company that way. So, as a result, we tend to index towards people that want to be able to be empowered. They tend to be entrepreneurial. I say a lot like, you know, you, you put a wall in front of someone on my team here. And they'll stand back there and look at it for 15 seconds, and you start wondering, like, are they going to step back? Are they going to turn away? Are they N- None of that's going through their mind at all. They- they're-, they're just looking at, like, am I going to go around this thing left to right, crawl over it, go under it, go through it? There's 15 seconds where they're deciding how they're going to get through that barrier, and then it's just go. And so that is the entrepreneurial kind of team we have and, the, and, and we try to empower them. I don't try and micromanage them. We try and give them operating envelopes. I learned in the military a lot about giving operating envelopes so when people fail, because they, they gotta fail to learn, but they shouldn't fail so badly like, like the company fails as a result of it or we have some you know, giant meltdown in our financial statements. So we, we try and define operating envelopes. So that's a little bit about kind of our culture and, and, and the types of people that sort of self-select here.
0: Woo! We're gonna like inject, like post edit, like a crowd cheering.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes. Video edit. No like.
1: Yes, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that one without glasses. <laughs> what?
0: But I got to I got to dive into that. What is an operating envelope?
1: Well, you know, so so I'll give you sort of um, b- b- back in the day. So uh, just as an example, most people that haven't been in the military think that the military is this top-down thing. You see movies, and there's like someone barking orders, and like, you know, salute, and yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, you know, do some push-ups, whatever. It's all crap. Like, the, the, the military in general is about, hey, we're going to have small groups of people out there on their own, you know, finding their way. They're going to be on watch in the mid-watch on a ship. They're going to be... On some mountaintop trying to draw bearings and, 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 and um, do some scouting or something they've got to be able to make distributed decisions okay and so the military trains um, junior officers and non-commissioned officers which are enlisted but have grown up through the ranks to be very autonomous and make decisions inside of an envelope so if you're a platoon you know, leader, you've got, you're inside of a company of three platoons and, but inside of that platoon of about 30 people, you and your, your non-commissioned, you know, master sergeant or whatever uh, uh, in, the, in the Navy as a chief petty officer are making a lot of decisions. And so they've got an operating envelope that's about what that 30-person team can do, um, how much ground they've got to cover, what their mission is for the day or the week. You can translate that very quickly into a sprint team. It's a product manager, it's a development lead. It's four or five people. They've got a sprint of, and here they're two weeks. They got to make decisions day to day on how that sprint's going to go. They got to they got to do a retrospective on that sprint at the end. They've got to decide what the next sprint is, how they're going to bid the story points. That is a decision, a set of decisions that are made every day in standups um, on what we co- what I call here the edge, right? Um, it's where the decisions are made. And what I tell everybody is the edge is nowhere near my freaking desk. It's, it's in the sprint teams, it's out with the customers, there's people making decisions of what to say and not saying a customer every day. I can't micromanage that. We'll never grow that way. We got to empower those people. We got to train them and we got to give an operating envelope. So in pricing, we have a really really complex pricing matrix because we price across five orders of magnitude of volume. We have customers that do 10,000 queries a month. We have customers that do tens of millions of queries a month. Like it's a most complex pricing thing I've ever seen. So we have a pricing matrix, but they have to be able to operate within that. Um, so that's their, their, their operating envelope for pricing. Uh, but they have to be able to operate within that with some leeway. Um, and so, you know, whether it's a customer-facing team with the customer, whether it's product managers and and, um, uh, and 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 development leads, whether it's data scientists deciding when a model is good enough—like that's a really hard thing to decide. Like. When's this model ready for release? Because you can always test more features, right? Always. So some, at some point, you got to call it good enough. I can't call it good enough. My senior vice president product can't call it good enough. They're not close enough. He's not close enough to it. We got to have that product manager and that data scientist who's on that model be able to call when it's ready for release, right? So those are the operating envelopes we decide. And then we empower small teams at the edge to make decisions day to day.
0: Oh, I love it. I want to come work for you guys. <laughs> uh, it's like I'm sure people are thinking that themselves. If they want to find out more information, like where do they go?
1: Akata.com, Ekata.com. E K A T A.com. We're always we're always looking for good folks. We have we have some people work from remote, but in the U.S. our headquarters in Seattle. We have a team in Amsterdam. We have a team in Budapest. Uh, we're just opening an office in Singapore right now. We've got. Uh, a couple different AWS instances uh, here in the U.S. and over in Frankfurt, Germany. We'll be open to one in Singapore um, middle of next year. So we've got a replicated set around the world um, for our customers and low latency. Um, we're we, you know, we excited about our mission and what we're doing.
0: Singapore is getting really popular. I keep hearing it come up in conversation constantly.
1: Well, it's one of those places where, first of all, just geographically, it's been you know on the on the trade routes and, and, and kind of most, one of the most critical trade routes in the world since you know time immemorial, right? And um, it's at that choke point um, at the end of the Malay Peninsula, um, and uh, it's a merge of a lot of cultures. There's you know uh, you know Chinese influence, Indian influence, um, a Malay influence. Um, great food, by the way, uh, everybody speaks English. there as a first or second language. Um, they're all super well-educated. The government supports technology and it's got, you know, a a sort of a defined set of business law, which like right now in China is becoming very dicey for entrepreneurs and and people that have made investments in China because business law is just sort of going away, uh, but not in Singapore. Um, so it's a, it's a great place to be. Plus, We travel a lot to see customers and it's a, it's a, it's a hub geographically. You can hop on a plane and be anywhere basically in Asia Pacific region in about an hour and a half. And we, we travel here to see customers all the time. So our team there will be able to get to Indonesia or Thailand or, 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 you know, Australia is a little further, but, um, sort of anywhere in in the Asia Pacific region very easily.
0: That makes sense, right? Centrally located, modern, no, and then. I'm excited because I want to go try the food. <laughs>
1: exactly. Amazing food there, by the way, you can eat all day, every day. So I want to talk
0: a little bit about sales because okay. you, you have a sales background. You're also got the geek tech tech background. Um, I have a couple, couple CTOs, VPs, engineering people that have been asking me, like one question specifically was about, uh, like divesting or creating a new product within their teams. Like they have their, their normal core product that they're doing. And then they, they've been doing that for maybe 10 years and they want to boot yep. up something else, but they have to go, here's where it gets tricky. They have to go sell this idea uh, of the investment to the executive team, to other members of the executive team. Uh, and they don't have a sales background, right? Cause they're mm-hmm. CTOs yep. and they have great product, great managers, leaders, but they don't have sales background where do they go look? What sort of advice? Do you, do you have a, a favorite sales training book or something? Like, how do I just get my feet wet with learning how to sell my ideas to other people?
1: Yeah, great. That's a great question. Um, we, we talk a lot about this right now internally. Um, and uh, what I would call that is change management. Um, because selling at the core, like when people say sales, a lot of people in their mind, they think, oh gosh, use car salesman, like twist your arm. Sales isn't about that at a professional level, and not at a B two B level, internally or externally. What sales is is like, hey, if Joel was going to make a decision based on some set of you know parameters and, and influences and so forth, and he was going to go you know uh, a like forty percent of the time and B sixty percent of the time, if I'm involved and I can sort of sway Joel a little bit, and we flipped a coin, you know, we we had to make that decision in in some kind of a modeling exercise, you know, a hundred times. Suddenly, with my involvement, it's going to shade more towards A because that's what I want him to choose. Maybe instead of you know being uninfluenced, he picks A forty percent of the time. If we if we simulate this thing a hundred times with my involvement, he picks A fifty five percent of the time. That's a win, right? Because I can't make the decision for you. And by the way, if you feel like I'm trying to control you, you'll never do what I want you to do, right? But if I somehow give you information, I give you inputs and ex you know different uh, uh, things to um uh, to, to sway you towards where I want you to go more often that's what sales is about it's really about influencing decisions all right and um, internally uh, a lot of influencing decisions is about change management all right so internal sales is really about change management because we've been doing this one product for 10 years in your example right what so good Lord Joel seriously you, you can't really believe we're gonna like break this off and do some other products. Everybody in the whole, whole company thinks about this one thing we've been doing for 10 years, and we've always done it that way. You know, how many times you hear, we've always done it that way. And so, if you think about um, change management, you know, there's a couple ingredients. Number one is you know you got to sort of build a coalition right. It's got to be a little bit bottoms up. In other words, hey, two or three of my peers also believe we should do this, and that may take a while. Might take them to lunch. You might talk about it with them. You might formulate what they need to understand to sort of be bought in. So you get a little bit of a you got more than just you trying to do it. The second thing is you may need some executive sponsorship. So you know if you're a CTO, you probably your executive sponsorship is the CEO, right? And you probably need to soften that person up, socialize this idea a little bit, so, like, the first thing they see is not some frontal assault and some big meeting about we should break off this product. Rather, you they've sort of been socialized. The third in change management is some kind of compelling, small but impactful either analysis or um, slide deck or something. I, I tend to like a two- or three-page, you know, um, uh, Uh, analysis in Word because when you when you do things in Word versus PowerPoint, you think deeper, right? But on top of that, you also need some kind of visual impact, right? So let's just say like, you know, the visual impact is, hey, we've had this product for 10 years, it's been on a slow decline in revenue or usage or something for the past three years. And so, I just want to make everyone clear, even though this is our core product, it's in a slow decline. Here's the chart to see it. So, everyone's on the same page. We got to do something here. Like, sort of, you know, in the military, make not making a decision is actually making a decision, right? So, we're we're very biased towards making a decision. Any decision is better than no decision. And so, um, so, so then, once you've got that visual, then you've got some other visual of why whatever decision you're making is going to... Because most people are visual and they'll remember very little about what you say, but they'll remember some visual chart, right? And then the the last thing about um, internal is I call it repeat the message, right? If I say repeat the message here once a month, I say it, I'm not kidding, 200 times. Because whether it's with customers, whether it's internal, if you're trying to change something, saying it once will not matter. Saying it twice will not matter. Saying it five times might, I I tell everybody when we're out with customers, and this goes same with internal, that customer thinks about us once a month for the half hour you're sitting in front of them or her, right? Um, We think about us all the time, right? I I, I know all about us, right? But that, that customer's thinking about us a half hour. While we're sitting there with them, and hopefully we're in front of them, because by the way, if we're, you know, talking to them over the phone, they're checking their email, you know, they're, they're doing other stuff, they're, pair, they're multitasking, right, which means they're not concentrating on us at all. The likelihood they will remember what we tell them the first time. Think about all the noise in your life, Joel. You got freaking your phone going on. You got social media. You're getting text from your wife. You're getting your text about how your picture from the daycare, right? Like I gotta look at that for a minute. And and all of that stuff's distracting you. So the first time I tell you something, the likelihood you remember it, 20% on a good day, right? The second time, it moves up a little bit, 20% compounded. So by the way, by the fifth time, you're not gonna 100% remember it, but compounding that 20%, there's maybe like a 50% chance you'll remember it on the fifth time, right? So you just got to repeat the message over and over. And, and when I'm trying to change something internally here, I, I start to know I'm making progress when I see the eye rolls. Oh God, Rob's going to talk about training and onboarding again. Oh, he's going to do an inventory training and onboarding by every team. Oh, he's, in all hands, he talked about training and onboarding. And when I start getting the eye roll, I know, like I'm making progress, man. They know they know the message is coming. Same freaking message, not a new one, right? And so, so yeah, anyway, um, you know, build, build a little bit of a groundswell uh, in terms of change management and selling, build a little bit of a groundswell with some peers, um, have some executive sponsorship. So you got this sort of yin and yang of bottoms up, top down, uh, build some kind of a short, compelling, you know, um, uh, um, uh, 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 um, you know analysis with a visual, some visual that, that makes a statement of why we got to do something or what, what we do, how we'll improve things and then repeat the message.
0: Oh, I love it. Dude, you're like straight fire. This is like a gold episode for me. Way to end a Friday strong. I don't even know what to ask you next. I'm all like nervous now. I'm like, all right, no, I've got to it's This the glasses, got to be a good dude, one. I you. We got
1: started with the glasses and I just got on a roll.
0: I love it. They're magic, man. Okay, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, product and like what you're most ex- in the future. I think, yeah. I think quite a good, uh, wrapping up point. Like, yeah, what are you really excited about? What are you jumping out of, of bed in the morning for? Like what's coming down the pipeline?
1: Yeah. Well, when we started here, you know, back in 2013, 2014, we focused on a couple of, 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 of dynamic P- PII, personal identifiable information elements, um, uh, to help identify someone's address and mobile phone number. And then we added email, and then IP, and more and more today we put those things in models, and we derive our own elements. Okay, so um, and we we work with our customers to get training data, and you know we're we're compliant with GDPR and all of the things globally. We we were very careful about being compliant with all local laws, and all of the privacy that's tightening down and so forth. We anonymize data, um, we 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 hash data, but um, we more and more are modeling elements, and those those modeled elements. are are stronger signals for our customers to help make decisions on whether this is fraudulent or good, uh, this person, this transaction, than than just the the elements in the raw. And so the more we can help our customers make decisions through modeling, the better, and the stronger it makes our IP. Um, So I'm really excited about that. And then if you combine that with latency, we've moved into this pre, what what the industry calls pre-auth window or pre-credit card authorization window, or prepayment authorization window. And it's a, it's a steep buy-in, you know, it, you're not playing on the three, six table in Vegas, you're playing you know, with, with, with the, the, the deep pocket people on the, you know, hundred dollar buy-in table. Right. And, and so, um, you, you, basically, you know, to get into that, you, you've got to have a product that is up all the time. You've got instances on multiple, um, continents so that, you know, anywhere we, we figure anywhere our customers need to be, uh, they, they need to see. Maximum thirty milliseconds of wire travel time there and back, and then an eighty-millisecond response, um, and that fits into this pre-auth kind of one hundred fifty to two hundred fifty-millisecond window of of the companies in the space. Um, one in ten maybe can make that window. So we've we've paid for the buy-in, right? We're we're at that table now, and so um, so now we're going to keep driving down that curve on the response time, and we're going to get more and more customers to understand why pre-auth is is really important. It's really important for a really esoteric thing going on in the EU called. Payment Service Directive Two. It's a long story. Your, most of your uh, listeners don't even want to know about it, but it's some new requirements in payments um, for 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 you know card not present transactions that are going to drive a lot of things towards pre auth. We're right there. We're right on the breaking wave of this um, uh, kind of market movement. We're really excited about it.
0: All right. So I'm somebody. I want to learn more about this problem. I want to contact sales. I want to work at the company. All of
1: that on your website. All of it at akata.com, E-K-A-T-A.com. Okay,
0: I love it. Now, I'm going to give you one last question here. All right, Joel. Hypothetical question. So, you're in your 20s, you're on the nuclear sub, right? And you walk into the other room, and there's Elon Musk, right? And he asks, uh, you'd give like one piece of advice. He's like future Elon Musk. Okay. Okay. He's traveled back in time and he's okay. asking your past self and you're with him by the way. So you're like 24. I'm I'm very clear about this. So Sorry. you're you a 24 year old you on the nuclear sub. All right. Walk into the bridge. Is that a thing?
1: You Say. walk into control room, control maybe. Yeah. Walk mm-hmm.
0: into the control room. Thanks for the assist. Yeah. And there is Elon Musk and current you like today okay. with the glasses <laughs> With glasses. Thanks for that clarification. Yeah, okay. <laughs> With glasses and Elon yeah. Musk. And you're like, what is going on? You don't even know who Elon Musk is. Yeah. And you give yourself one piece of advice for the future, just one, what would it be?
1: Enjoy the journey. Yeah. I think a lot of people in technology spend a lot of time focused on that, the destination, which is some like big outcome or big win or IPO or or, you know, big exit or whatever you talk to people that have been through all those and they're like bored, they don't know what to do anymore. Or, or, you know, it, they thought they'd be really happy and then they're not that happy or whatever. But you know, the journey is about getting up every day and, you know, trying to slay the dragon with the team around you and, 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 and trying to make things happen. And, and, and um, I had a, you know, I, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I ran this company for six years. I poured my life into that business um, and it didn't work. It failed. And, uh, in a lot of ways it was a blessing cause I learned a lot there and I, but I also learned that like the outcome was a little bit less than just enjoying the journey. And I get, we, we got investors and shareholders and board members, we got to have good outcomes and, and all that stuff, but, but what gets me up every day is not thinking about an outcome. What gets me up every day is, you know, we're shoulder to shoulder here, small team, super aggressive, innovate, you know, another one of our operating imperatives, innovate in dog years. I get up every day energized by the people around me and me and our customers.
0: Oh, dude, I love it. You're going to get so much outreach. I've, <laughs> the, the amazing culture. Look, I'm going to have Chloe book me to speak somewhere in your area just so I can like come hang out and stop by. Hey,
1: anytime you want to talk or stop by our offices, we'd love to have you, Joel. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much for coming on and hanging out, dude. We did it. We made a podcast. Is there anything we didn't cover that you want to get on?
1: No, it's just, I've got to figure out, these are reading glasses and they're blurry long distance. So I got to get clear, I got to get clear, like no, you know, um, without any, uh, so I can wear them day day and night now. So I look this smart and sound this good all the time.
0: Yeah, track your closing ratio too. (laughs) 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 Have a great
1: Thanksgiving, dude. You too, thank you, you, Rob. You're the best, see you, bud. Bye.